Good morning, everyone. Um, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to start this morning by reading through the first nine verses. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come before your word now, we pray that your spirit would convict our hearts and our minds, uh, edify us, grow us, mature us individually and as a church, as we seek to understand uh, Paul's instructions given to Titus for the church in his day and words uh, that apply to us now. We pray for uh, patience and understanding We pray for wisdom in these matters. Thank you that you have not left us uh, in the dark as to uh, what you would have us do as your people. We pray that uh, as we submit to your word now that it would bring glory to you. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Well, Last week we began a, a study on the book of Titus. Uh, seeing that it was a letter written from the Apostle Paul uh, to his co-worker in Christ, the man named Titus. The letter opened with the grounds for apostolic instruction. Uh, Paul succinctly outlined several reasons why Titus should carry out the task assigned to him. And as the letter was read out to the churches that Titus ministered within, there would be the impetus, the, the motivation for others to listen as well. Paul spoke with the authority of God as a designated representative. He made clear his divinely given assignment, uh, which was concerned with the elect people of God, those chosen from before the beginning of time. He was concerned about bringing them to faith through the preaching of the gospel. He was concerned about growing the fruit of godliness in their lives as they followed Uh, that followed in response to the Spirit's regenerating and indwelling presence. 
And he was concerned about establishing their fearlessness, making them unmoved in the knowledge that they had received the gift of eternal life. And Paul made this assurance even more clear by showing that this gift of eternal life was promised in the past by the God who does not lie. And it was Paul's job to proclaim that message in the present because he had been personally commissioned by God to do just that. Moreover, these grounds for apostolic instruction were coated in Paul's genuine affection for Titus. Paul was not a cold taskmaster, but a man devoted to God and to those whom he served. He had a genuine heart for seeing people respond and grow in the gospel. And all this is packed into the first four verses, but it is the reason why uh, for, for Titus, it is the reason for Titus, uh, the early church and the church today, the reason why we are called to listen and obey what he declares in the verses that follow. And this is what we begin today. A major part of church life that flows out of what he has said, particularly the notion of truth leading to godliness, is the establishment of leadership. Uh, If evangelism, if edification, if encouragement in the wonder of eternal life is to be carried out by the whole church, then it's important that there are those set in place that lead the church into this maturity. Now, in many churches today... Uh, The concept of the priesthood of all believers is emphasised to the point of the exclusion of the necessity of leadership. Um, It's suggested that since there is only one mediator between men and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's no need for any other sort of middlemen. Now, reasoning like this uh, stems from a reaction to the unbiblical teaching of the Catholic Church, which places the church and its leadership as integral aspects to a person's salvation. But to remove leadership, and some others go so far as to remove the understanding of church itself, uh, is to swing the pendulum in the opposite way and to lead it into further unbiblical teaching. The teaching given here in the letter of Titus makes amply clear that leadership is important in the church. To overemphasize the importance of leadership is a bad thing. But to underestimate the importance of leadership is also a bad thing. Leadership is important. But leadership must be biblical in its manner. Think of Jesus' teaching uh, in Matthew chapter 20. What did he say after the mother of James and John requested that her boys have seats of uh, preeminence in the kingdom? Well, Jesus responded in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So biblical leadership is sacrificial. It is servant-hearted, and it reflects the example of Christ himself. 
Now, this is clear for any level of, of leadership. Any area of Christian ministry where there is someone who is placed in a position of, of greater authority, the reason for such placement is service. And we must never forget that. But this is most especially applicable to those who lead the church. There may be levels of leading within the church, but there is one group, one office, uh, that is tasked with the responsibility of overall leadership of the church, tasked with directing it to God's glory, and of whom will personally give an account to the Lord for how they have guided and cared for his church. And that is the office of eldership. Now, over the next three weeks, we will look at Paul's writing here in Titus chapter 1. But we're also going to traverse the scriptures to show that what he has written here is actually in line with the wider biblical witness. Now, it's with both trepidation and humility that I preach on these verses. Uh, In one sense, it would have been much easier to have someone else come in and and teach you about the need for eldership. Uh, They could just come in and and drop some bombs and and then head out without facing any repercussions. They could say that the the church must know that there is a God-given leadership for his churches that must be respected. They could quote in that message uh, from the writer of Hebrews, who declared in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It'd be much easier to have someone else come in and say that. But as the eldership, it's our responsibility to teach these things. So I teach with some trepidation on this matter. However, I also teach with humility because the list of qualifications that's found in Titus chapter 1 and essentially mirrored in in 1 Timothy chapter 3 Give anyone with the slightest degree of self-awareness a cold sweat. It is a high calling to be an elder. It is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility. It requires abilities to teach and to lead, but it requires that what is taught to be emulated in one's own life. So I ask that you pray for your elders, that we maintain the standing of character that is required of us. I also pray, uh, ask that you pray for this church, that God would raise up more men who aspire to this office one day. And pray for this church as a whole, as we remember that Christ gave gifted leaders to the church in order that the church may be equipped for works of service. While a church must have leaders who exhibit godliness, it will thrive as each member seeks to use the gifts that they have been given as well for the glory of God. So this morning, then, we'll serve more as as laying down some foundations. And please, I encourage you, if there's any questions that stem out uh, of this uh, passage today, or the, these verses we raise, then come and speak to me. As, as with any topic that is preached from behind the pulpit, come and speak to me, and with an open Bible we can discuss that further together. Well, the sermon is entitled, The Importance of Eldership, and uh, we will simply focus on Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 today, where Paul explains to Titus 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, I want us to see two things about the importance of eldership. That it is both a directive and a design of the apostles. Eldership is not something that was tacked on to the church years or centuries after the scriptures were written. It was part of God's plan for his church. And the apostles carried out this plan and they showed us what it looked like. So why is eldership important? Well, firstly, it is a directive of the apostles. Sometime after the end of the events in the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Paul was released from house arrest in Rome and then he continued his missionary work proclaiming the gospel. Uh, During the several years between uh, his release and then his subsequent uh, arrest and execution, he'd visited uh, the Mediterranean island of Crete and uh, with his co-worker Titus had begun preaching and then planting churches. Paul was following the same process that he did on all his other uh, journeys into new areas. Uh, He would preach the gospel. He would teach the new converts. He would help them establish themselves uh, before heading on to a new place. And then after a while, he would return and uh, he would discern and then appoint elders from among the believers to lead the church from then on. We see this after the first missionary journey in Acts. Uh, where Paul and Barnabas returned to all the cities where they'd established churches. And uh, in chapter 14, verses 23 to 24, we read that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What we see in his letter to Titus is that Paul had obviously needed to leave Crete before the work of appointing elders was finished. And so he directed Titus to complete that task. Now, many suggest that it's only possible to get uh, really a glimpse of how the New Testament church has operated. And, and when the question is raised, what did the church look like? Uh, the response can only be given, well, which church do you mean? implying that every church was different, and in particular, that every church was led differently. So it's really up to our own understanding as to how we set up leadership in the church today. But while it's true that there are many churches found in the New Testament, and each dealing with different issues, from a thorough study of the scriptures, it is clear that the office of elder was established practice within the churches. Acts 14, which we've just read, tells us that elders were appointed for every church that Paul and Barnabas visited. In Acts 20, in verse 17, we read that Paul uh, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Well, that there are elders in the Ephesian churches is made clear in 1 Timothy, because that's the place that Timothy was sent to serve uh, the churches. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, the letter opens this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. And as we'll see in a moment, 
the term overseer is synonymous with elder. Now these examples give clear evidence that in all the churches Paul planted, there were elders established. But the New Testament evidence goes further than this. James expands in his letter when writing to churches that were dispersed beyond Jerusalem. He declared in in chapter 5 and verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And then Peter, uh, writing to other churches also outside Jerusalem, says in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So it's clear that eldership was not simply a notion of the Apostle Paul, nor limited to the churches that he planted. It was an apostolic directive. Now appointing elders also signified a transition stage in salvation history. Christ had gifted the church with the apostles, that is the 12 plus Paul, to authoritatively proclaim the word. And their ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders to affirm the truth of their message. Now, once they laid that foundation, once the truth had been taught, once all the scriptures had been written, the apostles' mission in that sense was complete. And hence why there are no more apostles after the death of the apostle John. Because the foundation, once it was laid, did not need to be laid again. Hence also why the miraculous gifts were no longer needed, because the authoritative word of Scripture had been given and affirmed. And we know now that we have a sufficient and authoritative word. Timothy and Titus, they fall into this kind of unique category all of their own, uh, which is best described as apostolic delegates. Uh, They were neither apostles nor were they elders. They worked with the apostles and they appointed the elders. They kind of were in a, in, a, in a zone all of themselves. But the leadership of the church now falls to the elders as per the directive of the apostles. So that's point one. But the second reason eldership is important is that it is a design of the apostles. Now, this is really a given, isn't it? For since the apostles established the eldership, it means that the apostles designed by divine inspiration the nature of eldership itself. We don't have the privilege of making up our own understanding of eldership. It's been outlined for us and it is ours to follow what has been established. So let's look at this design Firstly, we see something particular about the terms that were used to describe the elders. The word elder is actually interchangeable with two other New Testament words, those being overseer and pastor. This can be seen here in Titus chapter 1, where in verse 5, Paul speaks of appointing elders. But then in verse 7, he refers to the same role as an overseer. It's the same term that he he used to uh, speak to the the church in Philippi, in Philippians 1 verse 1. Now all three terms are seen in in Peter's letter. In 1 Peter 5 verses 1 to 2, the apostle Peter declares to the churches, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, 
What does he say to do? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Here we see that the elders are the ones who exercise oversight and they're also tasked with shepherding the flock. Now, the command to shepherd is a verb and the equivalent noun is seen only one place in scripture when it's referring to church leadership and that is in Ephesians 4. In this passage, Paul speaks of those whom Christ has gifted to the church in order that the saints may be equipped for works of service. And he says this in verse 11. And he, that is Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. The term shepherds has been translated most commonly in English Bibles as pastors. And while there may be a a differentiation between uh, pastors and teachers here because uh, there is the gift of teaching expressed differently in uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's nonetheless true that uh, pastoring involves teaching. Now, when we consider the three interchangeable terms, we see that elder highlights the maturity, the mature character of the person. Overseer highlights the ability to lead and pastor highlights the ability to provide food, to provide teaching and care for God's flock. Now, the fact that Paul uh, tells Timothy, uh, tells Titus to appoint elders in every town shows the importance also of the plurality of eldership. Churches are not meant to be led by one single person, but by a group of leaders, a group of shepherds. This provides balance and it also provides accountability. Uh, Nevertheless, there is a biblical precedent to recognise what we might term as a, a first among equals. For instance, Jesus chose 12 disciples. But there was evidently an inner group who were privy to special moments of Jesus' instruction. And then of that inner group, Peter stood out clearly as the spokesman and leader. So within the eldership, it would seem appropriate to acknowledge a first among equals. And the best way of referring to that person would be the senior pastor. Now, the terms of Elder, overseer and pastor give a clear hint at the purpose of this position. Although the role is is fleshed out in various ways in the New Testament, perhaps the most succinct description comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17 where he says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. So what's the purpose of eldership? Well, at the heart of eldership is the dual task of governing and teaching. Alexander Strauss, in his book, Biblical Eldership, he fleshes this out with pastoral terminology. And he says, as keepers of sheep, New Testament elders are to protect, feed, lead and care for the flock's many practical needs. Protect, feed, lead and care. That sums it up quite well. Of course, 
The elders' shepherding work is never on their own authority. In 1 Peter 5 verse 5, the apostle reminds elders that if you lead well, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Elders must never forget that they are responsible to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, for how they look after his flock. Now, as we'll see through the the following verses of Titus next week, the task of eldership is also not something that any Christian can fulfil. All Christians are, are gifted by the Spirit, the Spirit who indwells all who believe in Christ, but not all are set aside for the eldership. Now, it's clear, firstly, that it is a role that can only be fulfilled by men. This is brought out uh, by the fact that only a man can be the husband of one wife. But of course, many churches today teach that this is simply a cultural feature of the first century and that Paul was simply accommodating to the time. Uh, Because we don't live in such a, a patriarchal society anymore, it can be assumed that the husband of one wife could just as easily be be transferred to being the wife of one husband. Yet, while this would be the position uh, of most churches today, it reflects a serious mishandling of the scriptures. When Paul said that an elder was to be male, the husband of one wife, he meant what he said. Did this mean that Paul thought women were unfit for ministry? Well, to ask a question like that also reflects a serious lack of knowledge concerning the scriptures. For instance, in Romans chapter 16, Paul asked the church to greet his fellow workers and servants in the gospel. And out of the 28 names mentioned, 10 of them are women. Paul was certainly not against women in ministry. But he taught in line with the scriptures as a whole that while men and women are equal in essence and being, they have been divinely fitted for different tasks. Now, there are several places that Paul brings this out, but the clearest is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the rest of this morning, uh, we're going to focus on an exposition of this passage, uh, which is important. It serves as preparatory work for Uh, understanding the qualifications of elders uh, in the rest of Titus chapter 1, which we'll get to next week. So uh, please turn with me back two books to 1 Timothy and chapter 2. In verses uh, 1 to 7, Paul explained that when the church came together for worship, this is the context here, a worship gathering, what he wanted was that prayer be made for all people, that they would come to receive Christ as Lord and Saviour. So let's read those verses. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now we'll have opportunity in the coming weeks to explore this text in more detail uh, because it relates to other things that are said in the letter of Titus. But suffice to say, the gathered church must be evangelistic in its prayers because this reflects the concern of God. But then from verse 8, Paul had to deal with issues that were hindering the church in its mission. And Paul begins by addressing the conduct of the men. The the content of the exhortation shows that Paul is not limiting the discussion merely to husbands, but he's speaking to all men in the gathering. And so verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. So as a result of false teaching being disseminated in the Ephesian church, uh, it seems that angry disputes were breaking out during the corporate worship and distracting the prayers. But if the believers were to fulfil the commands that Paul had laid out, then they needed to deal with these issues appropriately and in the right setting. While Paul is directly addressing the situation in the Ephesian church, his words have universal scope, for he wants the men in every place to pray, and to do so in a godly manner, in the knowledge of Christ giving himself for this world. That's what he teaches the men in the corporate worship gathering. That is the way that they can remove any disruption uh, from praying for the lost. Well, Paul then directs his comments towards the women. And once again, the context shows that Paul is not here limiting the discussion merely to wives, but addressing all women in the gathering. And he starts in verses 9 and 10. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So Paul exhorts women not to draw attention to themselves in the worship gathering by either immodest dress or impudent dress, for this only causes disruption. What do I mean by that? Well, a modesty, immodesty will cause the men to be distracted in worship. While impudence, dressing in a way that shows her wealth, will cause the poorer women to be distracted. For one group, it's going to cause a temptation to lust. For another group, it's going to cause a temptation for envy. That is not helpful in the worship gathering. Instead, Paul tells women that when they gather for corporate worship, they are to adorn themselves with good deeds that bring glory to God. As one commentator explains, what Paul wants the Ephesian women to do is to place priority on what really matters. 
And that is behaviour appropriate to a person who has made a commitment to godliness. Now, not only is the issue of inappropriate clothing causing disruptions within the worship services, there is also the issue of women seeking to teach and assume authority over the men. And this opens up the wider discussion on leadership that's prevalent in both of Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus, uh, who was working with the church on the island of Crete. Now, verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, just pause there for a moment, because many people jump immediately to the second half of that verse and cry inequality, where we actually must begin with the first half of the verse and recognise the incredible equality that is brought out here. Paul's saying that female believers are exhorted to learn and to grow in their knowledge of God as revealed through his word. In his Ephesian epistle, Paul declared that women and men alike were to be equipped for service as they matured in their faith through hearing the word preached and taught. There is no inequality in this. And it's a truth emphasized in Paul's Galatian epistle where he, he declared in chapter 3 from verse 26, he says to believers, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here in his letter to Timothy, Paul encourages women to grow in their faith because they, like their brothers in Christ, have the same worth before God. What seems to have happened, however, is that because many women were coming into the church from Jewish or pagan backgrounds where there were varying degrees of oppressiveness, the new teaching about all being one in Christ was seen as license for exerting their own authority over the men, a case of swinging the pendulum in the opposite direction. Yet while there is no difference between men and women in essence or being, there is a difference in function or role. And so women are encouraged by Paul to learn, but reminded that it must be done in a way that reflects God's role for them. This is borne out further in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is not limited to the worship gathering, as as the heading on most Bibles would suggest. It's It's a general principle. But by comparing the headship of a man over his wife to the headship of God over Christ, Paul shows that it is a matter of functional difference. For Jesus, Jesus is in no way lesser in being or in essence than the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. Indeed, that's why Paul reminds men only a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 11 that in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God anyway. A divinely ordained functional difference between men and women does not mean a lesser degree of value. Now, getting back to 1 Timothy... We see that when Paul says a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness, he goes on the next verse to explain exactly what he means. Verse 12. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, the command to learn quietly is matched by the command that she is not to teach. And the command to be submissive is matched with the command that she is not to exercise authority over a man. So while women are not permitted to teach and have authority over men, they are encouraged to use their learning to teach other women, younger women uh, and children. And this will be addressed in more detail when we get to Titus chapter 2, where Paul goes into this in great detail. What Paul makes clear here is that women are not meant to undertake the role of governance and teaching over the church. That is a role God has specifically designed for qualified men. He is not in any way denying a woman's capacity for learning. As elders here at the Mafra Community Church, we are all blessed and staggered by the intellectual prowess of our wives. We've heard this morning of the intellectual prowess of some of the the women members of this church. But there is more to it, as we shall see. Paul gives two specific reasons why it is the case. And the first is seen in verse 13, where he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So in a specific reference to Genesis chapter 2, the reason why women are not permitted to teach and have authority over men is because that would disrupt the creational order. Functional differences between men and women have disrupted have been disrupted as a result of the fall, but they were divinely established at creation. There is no difference of essence between men and women because Eve was formed from Adam's rib. And yet we recognise as well that the instructions to tend the garden were given to Adam. And then Eve was created as his suitable helper. Now, both of them were made in the image and likeness of God, Both of them were made unique and above the rest of God's creation and yet both were designed to complement the other. And so Adam was formed first and then Eve. The second reason Paul gives for why men are to lead and to teach in the church is spelled out in verse 14. Well, Paul says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul moves from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3. And he does so to show that women should not teach or have authority because when the first, over men, because when the first woman tried to do that, she was deceived and became a sinner. Now, some will assert that this is contrary to what Paul says concerning Adam's action in bringing sin into the world, which we we see particularly in Romans chapter 5. But these two statements can easily be aligned. In Romans 5, Adam is held directly responsible for bringing sin into the world because he was the first man through whom all people would come. And the prohibition in the garden had been given directly to him by God. But he simply ignored it by failing to demonstrate his authoritative leadership and protect Eve from being deceived. Genesis 3 verse 6 tells us that Adam was standing right beside his wife when the serpent spoke to her, but he didn't do anything about it. Now this is different to what is stated in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 concerning Eve. 
Paul says that she was deceived and became a sinner. She was left vulnerable to the serpent's guile because she purposely stepped out from under the authority of her husband that God had put in place. She denied the order that God had established and it cost her and humanity dearly. Now Paul has referenced Genesis 2 and chapter 3 uh, to show that women being restricted from teaching and assuming authority over men is not merely a cultural limitation, but a creational principle that must be reflected in all congregations in all generations. When men and women fail to live out the roles God has specifically designed for them, God will not be honoured and praised for his good work, and men and women will experience continued disruption and trouble that's reminiscent of what happened in the garden all those years ago. But Paul doesn't end on this negative aspect. He seeks to draw things into the positive. He seeks to show the hope and the life that is now found in the gospel. And that's where he concludes his discussion in verse 15, where he declares, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The singular she and the plural they show the connection that Paul has made throughout these verses between Eve and all the women who follow after her. Paul does not mean salvation can only be experienced through childbirth. For Paul makes clear many times that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, having done so even earlier in this exact context. Moreover, salvation by childbearing would be a work. And indeed, not all women get married, and not all married women are able to have children. The word translated as saved uh, means delivered, and while in most areas of the New Testament it speaks of deliverance from the wrath of God, it can be used in a broader sense. For example, being delivered from physical illness, or being delivered from danger. And when we recognise this, we see at least two legitimate ways of understanding the salvation that Paul speaks of here. It speaks of women being delivered from the stigma that is brought on by Eve's initial action of usurping not only her husband's authority, but God's divine design. An action which led the human race into sin. But it also speaks of deliverance in the sense of Uh, that every woman after Eve will be preserved from the false deceptions of the devil and his teachers if she humbly submits to God's design for her life. When Paul refers to childbearing, he's using this one term to signify the whole sphere of God's design for women in marriage, childbearing, and her responsibility of the home. Now, not all women will have children, but In the majority of cases, women will get married and have children. He's using this one aspect to speak as a generalisation. And of course, we know that uh, women's uh, abilities are not limited to these areas, but these are her primary focus. God has not designed women to to teach or to have authority over men. However, that does not mean uh, women are somehow of lesser value to men or lesser ability to serve in the kingdom. Rather, God has designed women to exert a great 
deal of influence in the world through the way they teach and grow their children in relationship with God. The ability to bring children into the world is the reserved privilege of women. And the relationship that that mothers have with their children is something that fathers will never know. This is not to say that women who do not have children are any less accounted for in this instruction. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, some will have the gift of singleness and be free to serve God without the distraction that that family can bring. It's probable that the false teachers in Ephesus were claiming that women needed to abandon the responsibilities of the home if they were ever to experience more of God's blessings, to experience God's blessings to the full. We know that's no different to today, is it? In fact, those deceptive voices are even more prevalent today, and even from within the church. However, while some balk at the idea that God has a specific and special design for women, it is actually in this that they find true fulfilment and blessing as they assist in growing a godly generation. And moreover, in fulfilling a divine calling, a woman has the distinct privilege of making an enormous difference in this world by raising godly children. Now, the deliverance from stigma and from false deception is also dependent on a woman's sanctification. And Paul says they will be delivered if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. They are to reflect in their lives that they belong to God and are faithful to him. It's thus a creational principle that men have been given a leadership and teaching function while women submitting to that authority have the wonderful God-given role of bearing and raising children and, and all that's involved in running a home and all for the glory of God. When everyone is serving God in the way that he has designed, the disruptions are removed and the church can get on with the purpose that it has been designed for. Again, remember the context here. What does this mean for whether women can be allowed to become elders? Well, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul explicitly states that it is a principle established in the creational order that women are not to teach or to have authority over men. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 and in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, Paul explains that a qualification of elders is they must be able to teach. But then more specifically, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17, he emphasizes that dual role of eldership, ruling and teaching. So it's clear then that the role of eldership can only be fulfilled by men. But there is a second requirement that also must be adhered to. Eldership is a role that can only be fulfilled by godly men. Men with integrity. Men who are above reproach. And this is what Paul explores more deeply in the following verses of Titus 1. And this is what we'll turn to next week. I pray that you see the importance of eldership from the scripture's testimony. It's a directive and a design of the apostles. And as such, it's necessary that we seek to understand and apply these matters into our own church life, that we may glorify God through all things in submission to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your, your saving grace in your word and you've also revealed to us moreover what it is called to live a life of godliness and obedience to you. Father, we pray that the teaching that as we've looked at today from your word uh, would resonate in our hearts and minds. If there are things that we've looked at that uh, may cause some to struggle, we pray that your spirit would continue to help them grow and understand that. Pray for a spirit of unity among us as your people here, that we will continue to edify and grow one another as we seek to understand your word more. And Father, as we seek to be a church that honours you in all, all matters, may you help us bring glory to you and may you help us be a, a witness into this world through our prayer for the, all people that they may come to know you and through our, our works of service as we seek to spread the gospel message uh, outside of this arena. We pray that you'll continue to bless us and guide us as we uh, delve more deeper into the writing of the letter to Titus. In your son's name we pray. Amen.